Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Al Gore's Senate testimony on global warming, The Sam Cedar Show, Counterspin, ABC News, Democracy Now!, and The Young Turks. My father served uh, here in this chamber, and uh, I was reflecting this morning uh, on uh, the differences that have occurred since he first came to Washington in 1938. And uh, there are all kinds of jokes about the hot air on Capitol Hill. I'm not going to make those jokes, but I am going to refer to the air on Capitol Hill. Because when he came here in 1938, there were around about 300 parts per million of CO2 in the air that he and his colleagues in this uh, Senate breathed. And today it's 383 parts per million. It didn't really go above 300 parts per million for at least a million years back, maybe longer, but in the uh, Antarctic ice record, that's about as far back as they can go. And uh, even though the Earth has gone through all these uh, big swings and natural cycles, the CO2 content never went above 300 parts per million in all that time. And just in the short span of time from my father's first service in the Capitol here and uh, today, uh, it, it's gone up a, a dramatic amount. And more CO2 means warmer temperatures. There really should be no doubt about that. That's been known for 180 years. And for at least 100 years, they've known roughly how much the temperature would go up uh, with the what concentrations of extra CO2. For most of human history, we lived on uh, the harvested uh, energy that came from the sun, and it was a net energy balance. And then uh, with the beginning of the use of uh, coal and then oil and other fossil fuel supplies, uh, we began to, uh, to, to use the accumulated uh, reservoirs of uh, hundreds of millions of years' worth of accumulated solar energy. And, of course, that meant returning carbon to the atmosphere in very large quantities. And from the early days uh, of that period, uh, there were a few scientists who said, wait a minute, that's going to have some consequences. And uh, it did. And it has now reached a point where we've literally uh, changed the radiative balance between the Earth and the sun. And the scientists who study global warming uh, gained a lot of their expertise by looking at the other planets in the solar system. And uh, Mars has just 1% of the Earth's atmosphere, and the temperature is not 15 degrees centigrade or 59 Fahrenheit. It's uh, 55 below zero on average because the CO2 doesn't trap the heat. Venus, by contrast, has much more CO2, and the temperature is above the boiling point of lead, and it rains sulfuric acid, not the kind of weather forecasts you'd want to see in the morning. Uh, and it's not because Venus is closer to the sun, because it's much hotter than Mercury, even though Mercury's right next to the sun. It's the CO2. This is uh, extremely well-established, well-understood, and well-known. Senator Boxer, I, I, I want to start off by saying that... Um, 
there's really hardly any way to overestimate or overstate the degree of hope that people out in our country have because of what you're doing, because of what this new Senate and Congress, everybody hopes, will, will do. This is not a normal time. We are, we are facing a planetary emergency. And I'm fully aware that that phrase sounds shrill to many people's ears. But it is accurate. The relationship between humankind and planet Earth has been radically altered in a very short period of time. And what, what would make us believe that we could go through these changes and not have an impact on, on the planet? We've quadrupled human population in less than 100 years, from 1.6 billion in 1900 to 6.56 uh, billion today. And that's uh, stabilizing of its own accord as girls are educated and women are empowered and Girls and women gain literacy, and as family planning that's culturally acceptable is made more widely available in every nation, and most importantly, as infant mortality goes down and uh, maternal and infant uh, health standards go up, the birth rates, I mean, the death rates come down first, and then after a few years, the birth rates come down, and the population of the earth is stabilizing, but with a four times increase in less than a century, our impact on the planet has been uh, dramatically changed. Secondly, and more importantly, the technologies we have at our disposal today are thousands of times more powerful than any that our grandparents had available to them. And that makes all of our activities more effective and productive, but it also makes us uh, sometimes a, like a, the proverbial bull in a china shop, and we're capable of doing damage that we're not always uh, fully aware that we're doing. And, of course, the common assumption is the Earth is so big we couldn't possibly have a lasting harmful impact on it. But the most vulnerable part of the Earth's ecological system, the scientists tell us, is the atmosphere. It's so thin, the number of molecules is uh, known. Uh, they say it's 10 to the 44, which is above my pay grade, but sounds like a big number. But compared to what we're able to put into it every hour of every day now, it's not that big. Just a few miles from here to the top of the sky before we can't breathe anymore. And so we're, we're changing its composition. We're putting 70 million tons every day of this global warming pollution into the Earth's atmosphere. And as you noted, uh, Madam Chair, 25 million tons go into the oceans every day. And they're lit that's literally making the oceans more acidic. But where the atmosphere is concerned, that extra CO2 is retaining in the atmosphere much more of the outgoing infrared that normally escapes back into space and keeps the normal healthy balance uh, within which humankind has developed and within which all of our civilization has evolved and all the cities have been located and all the ports and the places where the rain can be predicted to fall reliably enough for agriculture. And we're putting all those patterns uh, at risk. The 10 hottest years ever measured in the record have been in, in, since 1990. 
20 of the 21 hottest years have been since in the last 25 years. The hottest year of all was 2005. The hottest year of all in the U.S. was 2006. of his first feature documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? Welcome to the program, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, Chris, first off, let me start. Where, where is the website that people want to buy the film? Where can they buy it? They can buy it on uh, Amazon or Netflix or uh, PluggedInAmerica.com has a great little website for the film. All right, we'll put up more links uh, to it as we go on. I, I watched your film over the, uh, I guess it was a week ago, but um, it really is fantastic. Uh, first off, uh, tell our listeners who might not know, what was uh, the EV1, and uh, why, why was it so uh, fervently embraced by its, uh, by its users? Well, the EV1 was an all-electric car that ran on batteries that came out in the mid-'90s. Um, I think 1997, and the car was put in the streets, not just by General Motors, but actually all the car makers had their version of a electric car, because California passed a law and said, hey, we've got to do something about air pollution. Um, if you want to sell your regular cars, uh, car makers, you've got to start putting putting on zero emission vehicles, electric cars, on the on the streets. So they all did, and. Probably the jewel in the crown was uh, General Motors' car, which was called the EV1. And this car, you know, I was pretty skeptical. I got to drive one. Uh, was really a rocket. Uh, I think the, the the first one broke the speed record in the Utah at 180 miles an hour. Really, very fast car. If you took the speed regulator off. Now, but wasn't and, it wasn't it really light and sort of tinny, and it would just crack and crumble as soon as uh, you know it got a fender bender. Oh yeah, you you instantly die if you if you got in the electric car. I was, uh, <laughs> you know, they they had they were they were, um, you know they had to pass all the safety tests and they were they're actually quite durable cars. The the reason that the car was uh, was was so fast and efficient was that it was very aerodynamic. I think it was like a you know as aerodynamic as a as a jet fighter or something, because uh, the guy who designed it came out of. Uh, you know, it's Paul McCready, who had, who had designed some, you know, human-powered aircraft in the 70s and stuff. Very, 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 very advanced design. So, was it, so I mean, I mean, I asked this. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm not. It, it sounds a little bit facetious, but this is, you know, what we were all told uh, by, uh, you know, when this car essentially went away. Was that you're going to get killed in it? It's it's light. No, but it was basically. If you were to just, uh, you know, you didn't know it was an electric car, you would just assume it's a, it's a regular car until you got in it and drove it. Right. 
Yeah, well, you know, the reason we were all told that, and this is what the movie goes into, is because there's a huge campaign to take these cars off the street as fast as possible. And the, uh, the film goes into a lot of the reasons for that. One of the forces that was involved in these campaigns was the oil industry. They uh, ran these advertisements in all the, uh, the magazines and so forth saying, hey, electric cars aren't ready, they're not very safe, you know, it's, it's just we should make these things go away. And uh, it's, it's really too bad because the cars were ready to go. I drove one for five years, and I we never had any problem with it. It was a terrific car. I knew a guy I worked with, uh, I guess it was in, in 2003, who had to give up his car. He had one of those uh, RAV, Toyota RAV SUVs that was all electric. Now, now well, that per- precisely, because, you see, General Motors made one from the ground up, but Toyota just converted their ex- existing gasoline car, the RAV4, uh, and made it into an EV. So it was just as safe as their regular, you know, their regular SUV. It was exactly the same thing. It's just the innards were different. Now, uh, yep. now, how far could a car like that go? Uh, well, the Toyota uh, EV would go on a battery charge. Remember, these are commuter cars. Right. So this car would go like 100 miles on a charge, 100, 120 miles. Uh, so since the average American commutes or drives 29 miles per day, this is like the perfect second car, or, and usually the car you drive most because you don't go on those big trips quite as often. Right, and so, uh, now, okay, and now um, there ultimately was another battery that was developed that could actually go even further. Wasn't that the case? You explained that in the movie. That's right. On the General Motors car, the, the sports car, the electric cars, um, the first batteries would only go about 60 miles on a charge, which isn't that much. It, it, I didn't have a problem with it myself, but you know, some people go, oh, I don't know, man, that's not very far. Uh, so then a guy up in uh, Michigan, uh, famous inventor Stan Oshinsky, came up with a nickel metal battery, and this would make the car go up to 150 miles on charge. And so what happened to that battery? Well, when the, uh, when the car companies uh, sued California and got them to change this law, killing these cars, uh, GM, when they shut the program down, sold their share of battery technology to Chevron Texaco. Chevron Texaco? Now, what would they need batteries for? Yeah, I don't know. What? I mean, that's why, that's why we had to make this film, just to connect the dots on this story. What were they getting involved in batteries for? They'll tell you it's because, well, they want to get involved in new energy, but, you know, it's... Uh, what have they done with those batteries since then? Well, um, they still make them. They're hard to get, and if you talk to... Uh, talk to some people about it, they'll say that they really didn't put very much money into advancing the technology from where it was. And that's why the one of the reasons why lithium batteries, which we're now using in all our laptop computers and cell phones and so forth, which come from China, are, are beginning to take off because the, the, the nickel metal battery technology just stopped right then. Wow, I'm just absolutely shocked by that. All of the prices paid Definitions made of all expired. It's all gone haywire. How can you really say this is the only way to live and die? 
when Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace asked reporter Major Garrett on March 25th about the state of the global warming debate, what followed was a classic example of false balance, where journalists report two sides of an issue as though they shared equal merit, though they don't. After recounting Al Gore's recent Senate testimony, Garrett asked, quote, Ten of the hottest years on record have occurred since 1990, but is man-made pollution largely or entirely to blame? Close quote. To answer the question, Fox went to Patrick Michaels of the conservative Cato Institute, who challenged several of Gore's points with comments like, quote, Anyone who says that human beings are warming the planet at an increasing rate since they started to warm it is just wrong. Close quote. Fox News protected its viewers from the non-debatable information that virtually every pertinent scientific academy and professional society endorses the view that global warming attributable to human activity threatens the environmental stability of the planet. Viewers were also not clued into the fact that Patrick Michael's work has received hundreds of thousands of dollars from utility companies and the coal and petroleum industries, according to Industry Watch website ExxonSecrets.org. Later, Fox's managing editor, Britt Hume, claimed that global warming's man-made dimensions remain a source of argument. Hume's colleague, William Crystal, chimed in to say, quote, Gore's alarmism and extremism is outside of the scientific consensus. That's very clear, close quote. His scientific bona fides evidently established, Crystal went on to claim that since more people get sick from the cold, quote, a lot of cold is not so great, close quote. Fair and balanced, as they like to say over at Fox. Chairman and, and uh, Senator Gore, I enjoyed it very much. Great opening statement. Thank you. I don't agree with it, but I agree with your history. And that was very good. What I'm going to do is, uh, since she's allowed me to go three minutes over, and, and I'm going to try to make all of this in a very short period of time, I'm going to, I've put, structured my questions so they're yes or no questions, and they don't <laughs> require a lot of elaboration. So let me start off with four, and these should be pretty easy. I know the answer because I've heard some quotes from you that uh, lead me to believe what the answer is. First of all, yes or no, do you believe that human-caused global warming is a moral, ethical, and spiritual issue affecting our survival? Yes, I do. Uh, yes or no, do you believe that reducing fossil fuel-based uh, uh, energy usage will lead to lower greenhouse gas emissions? It depends on what the substitutes are, but uh, basically, yes. I don't think we, that's, I that's think that we can uh, capture and sequester the carbon and continue using carbon-based fuels. Very good. Uh, and yes or no, do you believe that home energy use is a, a key component, not the only component, but a key component to overall energy use? I believe that buildings as well as cars uh, and trucks and factories uh, are right. definitely a part of the uh, problem, yes. 
All right. Now, I'd like to put up the little pledge thing here. I'm going to ask you if you would like to commit here today. You know how many hundreds of thousands of fans you have out there that would like to follow your lead. And this pledge merely says, as you can read it up there, that you're agreeing to consume no more energy in your residence than the average American household by one year from today. Not right now. By You've got a whole year to, look, uh, to try to do this. Now, the one thing I'd like to have you not use in response to this question, which is a yes or no question, is the various gimmicks. Now, I have something I want to uh, submit for the record, Madam Chairman, that talks about the effects. The offsets and the credits are gimmicks used by the wealthy so they don't have to change their lifestyles. This, And I have an article that is last Sunday's United Kingdom Times. I'd like to add, uh, uh, submit for the record at this time. You may. All right. What's your answer? Well, first of all, uh, Senator, thank you so much for your question. Um, all right. <laughs> I, 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 I noticed uh, Tipper didn't say thank you for the question. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she would. But, uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, one of the other recommendations that, uh, that I would have is that, we, is that you also set standards for green energy uh, produced by utilities. And one reason I say that in response to uh, what you're saying here is that that's what we purchase, and we pay more for it because it's oh, still okay. relatively uncommon. Senator uh, Gore, and if I that, could just uh, well, you can't. If you could allow, if, if, you've asked the senator an important question. He's answering it. Give all right. him a if minute you to stop so the clock answer. during this time. That no, I'm not going to stop the clock. He has a minute to answer. How no. can you ask a question and not give a man a minute to answer? Please. Yeah, we, we purchase wind, wind energy uh, and other green energy that does not produce carbon dioxide. Uh, and th that does cost a little more now, and that is one of the reasons uh, why uh, uh, it costs a little more. We're also in the process uh, of renovating an old home. And I live, we live not far from where uh, Lamar and Honey Alexander okay. do. And we, Senator uh, Gore, you uh, had could, so could much more time, one, I'm going to have to Could I make my... one other uh, point? Uh, because <laughs> a lot of communities actually have laws preventing the installation of solar photovoltaics. So I assume the answer is no. Let's go to and, the next question. And if I could, if I could continue, I no, do you... believe that there should be a federal provision that overrides any local restrictions. All right, on Senator Gore, I'm very sorry. I don't want to be rude, but from now on, I'm going to ask you to respond for the record in writing, since you're not going to respond. Well, if, you I change your to, mind. if I choose to respond to you uh, verbally here, I hope that'll be okay, too. If it's a very brief response.
climate activist does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one at Mike Tidwell's Maryland home. Out with the old and in with those strange-looking but energy-saving compact fluorescents. Dramatically less money you're spending for electricity and you fight global warming. It, it's pretty simple. 128 years ago, Thomas Edison invented the incandescent bulb that would light up the world. But they aren't very efficient. Light bulb not included. That makes them perfect for easy-bake ovens because 90% of the power sent to an incandescent bulb is wasted as heat. Good for making cupcakes, not light. Even the people who make these bulbs will tell you they use a lot of electricity. Watch this electric meter spin when we turn on an incandescent light. Switch it off, turn on the fluorescent, and it runs dramatically slower. In fact, the fluorescent is four times as efficient. Which is why there is a growing movement to phase out the old bulbs within a decade. Australia has passed a law. California is considering a law. So once we make the shift roughly 10 years from now, we'll eliminate the need for about 50 to 75 coal-burning power plants, and we'll cut our nation's electric bill by over $10 billion a year. That made business sense for Walmart. It changed out all its bulbs in its stores and wants customers to do the same. So the country's top retailer, hoping to sell 100 million fluorescents, has joined with the Internet giant Yahoo to create the 18-second coalition, named for the time it takes to change a light bulb. And today, Philips, the world's largest bulb maker, joined utilities and environmentalists, talk about strange bedfellows, to declare it is time to pull the plug on incandescence. To uh, retire your first child is a, is a very difficult decision. With four billion light sockets in the U.S., the chances of Edison's old bulbs surviving are dimming. David Curley, ABC News, Washington. You outline in your film uh, a couple of uh, potential suspects: uh, the consumers, the oil companies, the car makers, the government. Tell us uh, uh, how, just briefly, how the consumers were involved in the killing of the electric car. Uh, well, because you know when the cars came out, gasoline was you know a dollar something a gallon, and. People just weren't interested, the ones that knew about this. I mean, the, the real thing for consumers is that the auto industry and the oil industry, in our view, after working on this project for three years, really made it very hard for anybody to even know these existed. If you ask your average person, they go, I never even heard about this. Right. But those people that did in California and, you know, where they, where they had to market them, um, a lot of them said, well, you know, SUVs are hot. That's what they want. Um, not really feeling very green this week. I'm not going to try it out. So the car companies made the case that there's absolutely zero demand for these cars. Now, in, in our view, uh, and again, living through this whole project, it's really kind of a specious argument because most people didn't know about them. But consumers have got to jump on new technology if they, if they want to see change happen just so they're, they're one of the suspects right but it's also it's hard to, to necessarily know these things are going around because usually when somebody's got a product they're trying to push you know about it 
Uh, so let's go oil companies. Well, we've seen Chevron uh, bought out the battery technology and then essentially sat on it. What, what other oil companies were involved in this? Well, the oil industry has a, a lobby groups. One of them is called the Western States Petroleum Association, and what they do is, you know, is they get involved in politics and, and and issues like this. And everybody pays, you know, if you're Chevron or Exxon, you pay your dues into these these firms, and they they lobby for you. What they did on this is they set up these phony front groups like Californians Against Utility Company Abuse, and they would say, uh, "Hey." Uh, you can't let electric utilities build charging stations for people around the country. That's not what taxpayers want. And they didn't even say they were the oil companies saying this. So right. This kind of stuff. It's just it's, it's it's such a tragedy because we need to move ahead. And if uh, big vested interests are just investing and keeping us all behind, we don't move anywhere. Now, why did the gar- why did the car makers uh, um, uh, help kill this? Well, car makers. You know, make lots of money on the good old fashioned internal combustion engine. They've got their margin built in. You know, this is a product they've been making for years. And new technology is disruptive. It takes a few years to make money off of it. And they just said, you know, we're not going to make money on this thing. We don't want to do anything that California tells us to do. So let's just drag our feet and try to kill this. And what they did is they went over the top. Not only did they get the law changed, but then they took all the cars back and destroyed them. Yeah, now they, that's the thing. They wouldn't even let anybody buy them just to keep them. No, they'd never let you buy them. You could only lease them. And uh, and then almost all of them were, uh, they took almost all of them back. Now, but why wouldn't the car makers say, wow, we could make a lot of money off this in the future? Well, I think the smart ones did. Um, you know, looking at the horizon, and a lot of hybrid technology came out of this. In mm-hmm. fact, those nickel metal batteries that uh, Stanoshinsky developed are in every Prius that's on the road right now. So the Japanese uh, car makers uh, understood that there was value in this. They, they did. Just that, you know, what, one of the things with the electric car is that there's almost no maintenance on it. And car industries make a lot of their money on parts of service. Uh, so you so, can't get the fuel changes, you can't get the oil filter, uh, because there's, there's no, no the, the parts simply don't, uh, you don't have an engine. Ah, no engine. And it's, it's not the gift that keeps on giving. In other words, exactly. Like uh, uh, you know, I've had my electric car for five years. The only repair it's really had is like get the you know, the wheels rotated and have the windshield fluid because it's a battery and a motor. Wow, I forgot about that. There you go, folks. And so uh, the California Air Resources Board they uh, cave into uh, the industry demands and basically reverse uh, the law that said you got to have zero emissions uh, fleet on the road. Yes, requiring them to put, a, put electrics on. They created this exemption and all kinds of stuff, lots of legal stuff. So, I have to hand it to you. you know, there was two Republican women and you know, not, that, that fought the car companies vigilantly for like six years. And they're sort of you know, old-style green Republican ladies. They fought them. But eventually, you know, these guys got a lot of money, and they turned it around. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the and you have, I mean, you have a couple of neocons in there, uh, Woolsey and Gaffney, uh, who are pro uh, the electric car, and um, Mel Gibson. I mean, I think that's the point, is that really the story you're telling here is not a partisan story. The story you're telling here is really what will happen when um, moneyed forces, uh, I mean, act in the interests of their 
profits as opposed to the interests of the country. That's right. You got it. I mean, and how difficult it is to change big industries because they'll do anything they can to keep making money the old-fashioned way. And that's the problem with a big, uh, uh, with a big, uh, with a big company like that. There's no way. It really, it's going to take government regulation before this happens. It was government regulation that made them introduce it, and it's going to take government regulation in the future too. Don't you think? I, I do, and I'm not like government solves everybody's problems. I think they create a lot of problems too. But, but in the case of something like transportation, where it's so expensive, to change the way we do things, you've got to have carrot and a stick, and that stick's got to be tough. And 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 you know, carrots have to be smart. Because they're, 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 they're trying to, you know, we're trying to guide the ship of state here. And it doesn't work if you just let the corporations make all the decisions. So now you're driving uh, the, the, the RAV uh, Electric, is that it? The, the Toyota RAV Electric, yeah. They, 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 after people protested enough, um, and the movie goes into some of the protests, and they, uh, they let some consumers keep, buy some, like maybe a few hundred of them. Wow. And so how do you charge it up? Oh, you just charge it. You know, it's, you, when you charge it when you're sleeping, you pull it into the garage, and uh, you, you plug it in in the morning. It's always ready. What do you mean? You just plug it into a regular outlet? It's a two. It's a, two, it's a two twenty outlet. It's kind of like the one you use for the washing machine. Wow, man! And then, and then uh, California spent. So How much, much you want for it? Again? How much you want for it? How much you want for it? You get them on eBay. Every once in a while, one comes up. How much do they cost? Oh, like now they're running like fifty thousand dollars. Wow! But consider this: the equivalent cost of electricity when you charge at night is about sixty cents a gallon. So once you have this car, that's sort of it for your expenses. Wow, man! So, well, they're going to be looking into that maybe. All right. So, 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 what would you suggest for people today? What is an option? I mean, to be honest with you, fifty grand. I don't exactly have. I may have to sell a couple more old Majority Report mugs, but um. <laughs> What, what, what would you suggest today if someone wanted to get the a a, um, uh, a, a, a an eco friendly car, one that will push the technology forward as well? Well, you know, first of all, if, if folks just take some extra time to think about what they're going to do, I, there are electric cars coming back on the market, and they're going to be cheaper. Um, they're not here yet, but there's a lot of pressure. The, the movie tips people off to a few of them, so you know, check out the movie if you haven't seen it. Um, then uh, the easiest thing to do is just get a high mileage per gallon car for the short term. Mm-hmm. Like one of the one of the big characters in our film still drives a 1974 Honda that gets like you know 45 miles per gallon. Wow! So you don't have to get a Prius or something to have a car that's eco efficient. Um, hybrids are, are a good stepping stone, and they'll get you excited about electric. You know, a lot of people once you start driving a Prius or something, you you try to keep that car in electric mode. You you, you start getting really psyched about it. Um, and then there's lots of people doing stuff. I think the Yahoo has a, a, a green car site now. If you go to Yahoo and you type in green cars, there's a whole analysis of what cars uh, are more efficient. But basically, push we got to push our government to like get electric cars back on the road because you're not going to solve all problems, but they really are part of the solution. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chris Payne. The film is Who Killed the Electric Car?
All right. I'm sure you read the New York article that quoted the scientist. Uh, I mentioned this in my opening statement about they're their criticizing you for some of your uh, being too alarmist and hurting your own cause. Now, I'll ask you to respond in writing for that one because that would be a very long response, I'm afraid. Now, it seems that well, I would everybody like uh, on I, global warming in the media uh, joined the course Excuse last me, summer. Senator Inhofe, we'll freeze, I'm the, we'll freeze the time for a minute. Oh, I'm yes. just trying okay. to make... Take your time. We're freezing no, no, the time. We're freezing the time. Just for a minute. I want, mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a minute, please. <laughs> would, you, would, you agree, would you agree to let the vice president answer your questions? And then if you want an extra few minutes at the end, I'm happy to give it to you. But... We're not going to get anywhere. Why don't we do this? We're asking Why don't we questions? do this? At the end, you can have as much time as you want to answer all the questions. No, that isn't the, the rule. Of the, you're not making the rules. You used to when you did this. You don't do this anymore. Elections <laughs> have consequences. <laughs> <laughs> Elections have consequences. So I make the rules. But here's the thing. I want you to get your questions answered. I've promised you to give you an additional three minutes of time. But if you will allow the chair, if I believe the vice president is wandering into another area, I will just say that quietly, and he will, I know, move on. He knows the rules here. Well, you know the rules. Let me read to you what you said to Mr. Johnson. He was before this committee. He said, the fact is, I don't need to talk now. I don't want you to talk anymore. Now, I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to do that. But that's what you did. And... I only want to be able to get through my time. I can't do it Go ahead. if you filibuster. All right, Go ahead. Good. Now, <laughs> it seems that everything is blamed on global warming. You talked about the fires in Oklahoma. Last summer, we had a heat wave, and everyone said, oh, that's proof it's global warming. Then we had a mild December. Oh, that's proof uh, that global warming is taking place. Now, I, I, I wonder, how come you guys never seem to notice it when it gets cold? Now, if you put up chart number two there, this is for your benefit, Senator uh, Clinton. This is in Buffalo, New York. Um, I have in my hand here the document from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They've set records all over America in January, 183 cold records, 183 of them. This is a new record all over the uh, America. That was all in one month. And I would just have to say that um, in our sake in Oklahoma, we had three days that were the coldest days in history, where it's global warming when you really need it. Now, what I'd like to do is also um, be aware that the debate took place last week in New York, and I'd like to have a, a brief thought about this. This is when the prominent group of five scientists and one doctor on each side of the issue uh, uh, had a chance to talk to, to survey their crowd. It was a very large crowd. 57.3% of the audience agreed with you that global warming is a crisis. About 29% said it wasn't. After the debate, it completely turned around. It's 46 to 42. Now, I think that that's all the more reason why there should be a lot more discussion on this. It was a huge shift. Now on science. You talked about science, and it's very interesting that when people don't want to talk about science in a debate format, in terms of how many scientists are on this side, how many on this side, what happens is you just say, it's settled. I mentioned in my opening statement, um, uh, Claude Allegre, he was from France, uh, near Shaviv from Israel, uh, Reed Bryson. These are all people who were solidly on your side of the issue 
um, uh, up until recently, and now they're 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 not alarmists anymore. They both, all three of them, have come over to the other side. Now, if you put up chart number three, there are literally hundreds of scientists on this chart. All of these scientists disagree with you. In addition to that, I'm heard. I'm sure you've heard this many times before because people are quite upset that the 60 scientists who were advising the prime minister 10 years ago of Canada. Uh, they said that, you know, you, we, we want you to join Kyoto, and so they did. Those same 60 scientists now are petitioning Prime Minister Harper of Canada to get, uh, get out of the Kyoto Treaty, and they are saying, this is a direct quote, they're saying, if back in the mid-1990s we knew what we know today about climate, Kyoto would almost certainly not exist because we would have concluded that it wasn't necessary. And the last uh, chart that I'll put up is one that everyone knows this. I think some of my colleagues may not be familiar uh, with this person. His name is uh, Richard Lindzen. He is the Sloan Professor of Atmospheric Science at MIT. He wrote an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal, and I will read it as you read it. It's not very flattering to you, uh, Senator Gore, but this is what he said. A general characteristic of Mr. Gore's approach is to assiduously ignore the fact that the Earth and its climate are dynamic. They're always changing, even without external forces. To treat all change as something to fear is bad enough. To do so in order to exploit that fear is much worse. So we've got thousands of meteorologists, geologists, physicists, astrophysicists, climatologists, scientists who disagree with you. Are they all wrong and you're right? Uh, Senator, uh, thank you. Um, I was sitting here trying to think what I could do or say that, um, that, that might make it possible to reach out to you. And I, I'm serious about this. Um, we've got a mutual friend named Doug Coe. Mm -hmm. I'd love to uh, have uh, breakfast with you sometime with Doug, just the three of us, and, and talk with you without the cameras and without the lights and, uh, and tell you uh, uh, why I feel so strongly about this. Well, I think you've told us in your opening statement. It was very well, eloquent. But... but uh, Anyway, I, you know, if there's a way that I could uh, talk with you that would make a difference to you, I, I'd like to do it. But let me respond to your question. Good. The National Academy of Sciences here in this country and in the uh, 16 largest or most developed uh, countries in the world, the ones that have respected large National Academies of Science, all of them unanimously have expressed agreement with the consensus that I stated to you. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that has had its fourth unanimous report in 15 years agrees with the consensus that okay. I've stated. To Senator Gore, if I, if I could, my time has almost expired completely. Are you aware of that? If I could complete my well, answer. Well, if you do, then that my time's expired. Are well, you aware of that? I can't you help care? that but because you went on for a long time. But I would well, like no, to... No, I have 15 minutes. I, I have You have thir had 30 minutes. I had 15. I, You've got to let me have my 15 minutes, if, Senator Gore. If I, could, if I could just... I can respond to what you said. my response. Well, you've already done it. The National well, Academy of Sciences... I, I actually I haven't... Uh, Senator, 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 I will stop the clock and allow Senator Gore to complete, please, Good. and then Thank we'll you. go back to you. Thank okay, you. Go ahead. I'll, just, I'll just give you one other example. The University of California mm -hmm. 
did a very well-respected, well-picked-over, uh, peer-reviewed study. Uh, it was, the team was led by Professor Naomi Oreskes. They reviewed every single peer-reviewed scientific journal article for the previous 10 years on this topic. They took a very large sample of almost 10% of them, 928. About 25% of them did not deal, of the articles didn't deal with the central point of the consensus, some arcane matter. But of those that dealt with the main consensus, the number that disagreed with the consensus was zero. This is a very well-established and very strong scientific consensus. And it's not me saying it, it's what the scientific community is saying. article in the New York Times Science section reported that Al Gore's warnings about global warming are seen by some scientists as, quote, exaggerated and erroneous, close quote. These criticisms, wrote Times Science reporter William Broad, come, quote, not only from conservative groups and prominent skeptics of catastrophic warming, but also from rank-and-file scientists, close quote. But virtually every criticism cited in the piece comes from a well-known climate change denier, most of whom have little expertise in climate science, and all of whom take a position strongly at odds with the overwhelming scientific consensus about human-caused global warming. The piece is also dishonest. Broadsided anthropologist Benny Pizer as having challenged the claim of scientific consensus on global warming. Broad quoted Pizer this way, quote, hardly a week goes by without a new research paper that questions part or even some basics of climate change theory, close quote. Well, that sounds definitive, but as the group Media Matters pointed out, Pizer's quote in context actually said the opposite. What he wrote is that the quote, overwhelming majority of climatologists is agreed that the current warming period is mostly due to human impact, close quote. But he added, quote, there is a small community of skeptical researchers that remains extremely active, close quote. It's that small community that Pizer says puts out the weekly papers. And that community seems to have convinced William Broad that their views ought to be taken as seriously as the overwhelming majority of climatologists. But should he really be criticizing Al Gore for not taking a scientific fringe as seriously as he does? The Lord knows that this world is cruel and ain't the Lord no just the fool and love is somebody don't make him love you. The Supreme Court has ruled the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate the emission of greenhouse gases linked to global warming. 
In a 5-4 decision, the court ruled the EPA violated the Clean Air Act by improperly declining to regulate new vehicle emission standards to control the pollutants that scientists say contribute to global warming. It's the first high court decision in a case involving global warming and is seen as a defeat for the Bush administration, which has refused to view carbon dioxide as an air pollutant subject to EPA regulation. Before we talk about the global climate divide between rich and poor countries, let's go to this U.S. Supreme Court decision that has rocked the Bush administration. Can you talk about its significance? Well, there was only one time uh, that George Bush, as far as I know, ever described carbon dioxide, the the main greenhouse gas, as a pollutant. Uh, That was when he was running for president. He uh, pledged to limit limit emissions of this gas, uh, along with other stuff, from power plants. But then right after he got elected, he uh, backpedaled away from that campaign pledge. And then from from that point onward, for the administration, the idea that carbon dioxide might be a pollutant, like like, uh, lead or, or sulfur dioxide, the stuff that we're more familiar with, uh, as harmful substances, harmful some substances kind of went away. They just—it was a bright line in the sand, and there, anything that looked like it would um, move in that direction, they fought really, uh, really hard. And and now the Supreme Court has kind of just sort of taken away that whole uh, presumption that that, it, that that there's some reason not to look at carbon dioxide as a hazard uh, when it's in excess amounts, which is this whole question: how much carbon dioxide is too much? It has gone away. The Supreme Court has essentially said the EPA. Um, can't just sort of uh, say we're not uh, we're not going to examine that question, uh, particularly in this case because EPA said contended two things. They said the science isn't there that there's risk, and they also said that um, that they could make a choice based on policy considerations. The uh, Supreme Court justices have basically said it is there is a clear case for uh, for risk, uh, the, um, um, and that the, the EPA is required essentially to take a fresh look. Can you talk about who voted which way, the five to four decision, the significance of uh, Roberts joining with Alito and Thomas and Scalia in voting against or for well, the, the Bush the, administration? The significance essentially is that that there is still a big chunk of... Um, so there are people who are aligned with industry. There are people who just purely don't believe that that a gas like carbon dioxide, the bubbles in beer, can actually be in the same basket with things like um, sulfur dioxide or mercury. And, and I'm not sure there's a pure ideological um, divide on the court on this. I, I do think that the science is not, is not easy. And even during, during the, uh, the arguments, uh, Scalia said, uh, there was at one point, it was one of the, an amazing moment during the, uh, the, uh, the, the arguments over this, um, Scalia, there was some confusion about the troposphere versus the uh, the stratosphere, and and Scalia said something like uh, troposphere, stratosphere. That's what's pro- that's why I don't want to have to deal with this global warming problem. <laughs> it's complicated, and um, I do feel that in this country there's still a, a big block of people. I get I got huge amounts of email uh, when these stories have run the last couple of days of mine on ad- adapting to warming from people who just don't don't even get the basics that. Carbon dioxide makes the world warmer than it would otherwise be. If you have more of it in the atmosphere, that makes the world warmer. On that point, and the Supreme Court obviously now has echoed this, there, there is simply no um, knowledgeable disagreement in the, in the scientific community. Even people, even Michael Crichton at a recent debate in New York City, the, the author of The State of Fear, you know, which says that all environmentalists are, are fear mongers, um, 
he and Richard Lindzen, another a scientist at MIT who has uh, attacked alarmist portrayals of the climate problem, they both agreed that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. You put more of it in the air, it warms the world. And then it all comes down to what, judgments about how dangerous that is and what do you do about it. We're talking to Andrew Refkin, award-winning science reporter with the New York Times. Now, explain, though, exactly what this means, for example, for California. Well, the reason, well, California is trying to restrict uh, vehicle emissions of carbon dioxide, and they, they claim they have the authority to do so. And that, that, this case actually relates to that one, in, in that uh, now California will probably have an easier time uh, moving ahead on, that, on, that, uh, on its own efforts to do that locally. One thing that was really telling, I thought, in reading the U- USA Today this morning, uh, the, their story on this case, the, uh, the, the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, the main uh, lobbying group in Washington for the auto companies, which had been stridently you know, fighting the idea that CO2 was regulate, a, a regulatable gas, um, now they've com- immediately switched to, we need, a, we need an economy-wide standard for limiting it. They're, they're basically, you see this, or I've seen this in 20 years of writing about climate change, this kind of stepwise defense. It's just like an army defending in a retreat. Um, you, you kind of hold your ground, hold your ground, then move back to the next safe defense. And, and you can see that dynamic playing out here. What about the role of the auto industry in all of this and the whole issue of how federal scientists' research has been suppressed, as we saw recently in a congressional hearing? Well, I, um, for, for years, I've been exposing in a series of stories in the Times uh, specific instances where people who had worked for the oil companies or people who were you know, political appointees who had worked in, in the Bush re-election campaign were expressly trying to res- restrain scientists who felt that global warming was a problem and that carbon dioxide is, is a hazard from, from speaking their views. And this came to the fore just this, a few weeks ago in, in a couple of congressional hearings. And there, uh, too, you see this, um, uh, there has been some change. Uh, the NASA, one of the agencies where that had happened, has changed their policies. Uh, NOAA came out with some new policies that scientists still aren't very happy with. The, uh, that's the agency that studies the climate directly. And, uh, but scientists that I talk to now feel much freer to speak their minds uh, and not ne- necessarily have a minder on the telephone anymore, as was the, the norm at NOAA for a long time. So I do get a sense of um, the ball rolling here in a way that, that in 20 years on this covering this issue, I haven't seen. The chef prepares a special menu for your delight, oh my. Tonight you fly so high up in the vanilla sky. Your life is fine, it's sweet and sour, unbearable, great. You gotta love every hour, you must appreciate. This is your time, this is your day. You've got it all. Bush administration lost a Supreme Court case five to four on an uh, issue involving the EPA. Supreme Court got uh, two at the bottom of the line. Very dramatic. Yeah, and, and and it came in favor of the good guys, so everybody was happy. Alberto Gonzalez blew the save, <laughs> uh, which is not unusual, of course. Uh, so anyway, he, here's the bottom line on this: it's a complicated case, and there are a number of issues. And 
Uh, on some of the issues, I don't think the conservatives are way off base. Um, again, I'm a little conservative judicially, so take that in mind. Uh, but uh, the states are suing the government, saying, hey, will you, for the love of God, do something? Right. And one of the issues is, do the states have the right to demand that the federal government do something? I'm not convinced they do. That's where the that's a tricky question for me. But the Supreme Court ruled, yes, they do. Massachusetts, California, et cetera, can get the EPA to do something. Now, they say hard cases make bad law, and this is kind of, might be one of those situations. And should the EPA have the right to set its own rules? Man, I'm kind of tempted to say they should. In this case, the Supreme Court said no, they, that they stepped in. And, and the reason they stepped in was, and the reason this was a hard case is because the EPA said absurd things like, uh, carbon dioxide doesn't really have anything to do with greenhouse no. gases. But that's just, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And then they said, ah, we're going to leave it voluntary to the industry. And the industry is like, you can't, the industry even says, you can't leave it voluntarily to us. We'll never do it. You have to force all of us to do it. Otherwise, none of us individually would do it and take the competitive hit on it. And that's crazy talk. Nobody believes that. And then third of all, the EPA refused to do anything. Like if they had done something, the Supreme Court, what it always does, and a lot of people miss this nuance, even though it's so obvious, is it balances rights. It balances, hey, look, you got a constitutional right here and a constitutional right over here, or you got a government saying, hey, I really need to do this, but it's weighed against another constitutional right, et cetera, and they balance. And here, the reason that they rule this way is, on one side of the balance, you had nothing. The EPA refused to do anything. So the Supreme Court's like, well, I can't balance that. You got to do something. Yeah, but here's why. I, let me just real quick why I don't agree with you on on the balancing in, in 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 this regard, and why I don't think the conservatives have a point, and it's essentially because of what you just said. There's some. There's an excellent chance that 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 Massachusetts and California would not have sued the EPA if they had not said, "Yeah, we're not going to enforce the Clean Air Act." If they had not just shrugged their shoulders, because right. it would have been worked out, because some sanity would have involved EPA policy under any other president including Republican presidents. No, so, we agree. We yeah, agree. So, I mean, the Supreme Court, at this, I would have voted the same way. Look, the bottom line was their hands are tied here. The EPA flat out says we, you know, we won't enforce. The, our enforcement of the Clean Air Act, our interpretation of enforcement is doing absolutely nothing. And the Supreme Court says, well, that's not a legitimate interpretation. I'd have given you almost anything else. Right. But you're so extreme that you, you force my hands. No, you can't say I'll... My enforcement is no enforcement. Well, voluntary. Let's hope it works out for the best. So Massachusetts, California, and 11, other, and 11 states all in all are right. You need to enforce this thing because then otherwise you're going to have harm to Massachusetts, California, etc. Now, we got a guest coming up in the next segment. You're not going to want to miss it. He says Massachusetts is wrong. Global warming would help them. My response to that is, 
that the National, first of all, every scientist that I named up here is a member of the National Academy of Sciences. They disagree with you. They disagreed with that statement. But the National Academy of Sciences, back in 1975, they had a very interesting observation. They said, however, asserting a finite possibility that a serious worldwide cooling could befall the Earth within the next 100 years. Exactly what they're saying now, except at that time it was a... Could I, I comment cover, on, I could I comment, cover, could I comment no. on that? Uh, could In I, all, all respect, Senator Gore, we can't do that. You know that. Uh, and we... Uh, I wanted to keep going on and, and discuss China, but it's virtually impossible to do now because we've used up too much time, and I'll ask you to do this. Uh, Madam Chair, I would ask unanimous consent to give uh, Mr. Imhoff another two minutes so that Mr. Gore can respond. Oh, why don't you give it to Mr. Gore to respond? Uh, you get two, Mr. Gore gets two. I would ask oh, unanimous consent. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm going to object because here's the thing. Uh, what I'm going to do is allow, Senator, you will get your chance. Please. I won't. If you, if you just trust me for five minutes, you'll be fine. Five minutes. He's going to lay down Chairman. his rest of his rest of his questions in moments. And then I'm going to give the vice president the time he needs to respond within reason. OK. And then I'm going to go to Senator Klobuchar and then we're going to try to get control of this hearing. Uh, Senator Inhofe, was that your last question? Oh, no. You have a minute then to go ahead and ask your questions. Why don't you lay them all down, and then he'll answer them. Go ahead. You have a minute now. One minute, minute for my last – well, I already had three minutes. Well, I'll give you another minute. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I'll lay skip down all the questions. questions. I had 15 minutes of questions, <laughs> Senator Gore. I agree. Let's get together with Doug Coe and talk about it privately. But this is, this is a public forum. People have to know. I've listed all the scientists who disagree with you, and you did not respond to that question. So I would just say that I hope people understand – what the issue is, because a lot of people don't know the issue. A lot of people think the issue is, is, uh, is global warming taking place. The issue is, is it man-made gases, anthropogenic gases, uh, uh, CO2, that's in, that is the issue. Unfortunately, I think it's more of a money response than anything else. We have a lot of people pouring money into these things, and uh, the George Soros, the Michael Moores, the Richard Bransons, and all of that. But what I'm going to do in the last time since my time has expired. I'm going to ask you on your film, the last frame on your film, and it was kind of interesting because yesterday I ran into a parent of a student at uh, a school in, in uh, Maryland that said that her students uh, were in an elementary school were watching your movie uh, under the instructions uh, once every month. The last frame in that movie was, would you put that frame up? You're asking, and you've asked people all over America, are you ready to change your way of life? Are you ready to, ready to change the way you live? I would have to ask you that same question because we started my, my um, uh, term on would you take a pledge to do that? I think the answer to that is no. But in terms of changing the way you live, I think it's very difficult for you to ask other people to do it unless you're willing to do it. Are you willing to do it? If you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give. Sorry to have to interrupt at this stage in the questioning. I know you're all anxious to hear the former vice president's answer to that poignant and stinging question by Senator Inhofe. 
I just felt it was important to point out to you now the following fact. The Q&A portion of Al Gore's Senate testimony that you've heard today was actually obtained from Senator Inhofe's own podcast on iTunes. And it was at this precise point in the audio that either he, or more likely his staff, chose to end the clip. Now, global warming deniers are famous for using blatant dishonesty in their arguments, and in this case, Senator Inhofe's technique was to simply not publish the full testimony of the witness he was questioning. If you like, you can test this for yourself by finding the Senator's podcast in iTunes and listening to the episode titled, Senator Inhofe, Question and Answer with Al Gore at Global Warming Hearing. Gore's answer to that final question was obtained from MediaMatters.org and will be heard now. We live a carbon-neutral life, Senator, and uh, both of my businesses are carbon-neutral. We buy green energy. We do not contribute to the problem that I'm joining with others to try to help solve. We pay more for clean energy, and I think that utilities ought to provide more green energy that doesn't produce CO2. Uh, And we are in the midst of installing uh, solar panels. Again, I think that we ought to have uh, a law that says uh, communities and localities ought not be able to prevent that. I never made that public, by the way. The community where I live, it's a city within a city. Uh, I didn't want it because I, I asked them to change it, and they said we will. It just takes time. So uh, these kinds of things are what people are going through all over this country. They're buying the new light bulbs. They're putting in more insulation. People are changing. People are changing. The American people are ready to, to help solve this problem. But we have to have legislation that, that takes away the, the, uh, the right to, to pollute without any accountability or without paying a price for it. Because when, when we have uh, cap and trade, when we have laws that make it, that allow us to use the market in our favor, then those of us who are part of the solution rather than part of the problem will be able to leverage what we're doing. So I feel as though the ground may be moving under my feet a little bit, uh, and and not in a bad way, actually. Uh, following along with uh, some conversations going on in the best of the left community, uh, and uh, some email exchanges I've been having, as well as some events g- uh, happening right here at home for me, it appears that there will be some... Uh, To the casual audience listener, I would say some minor changes, but for me and and the people involved with making the show, maybe some more major changes. And, uh, you know, so for all of you, I'm telling you this, I I unfortunately don't have many details to give because there simply aren't many details uh, in existence, but you'll certainly be the first to know when there are. Um, but in the meantime, I just need to take this opportunity to kind of refresh where we are and, and, and then we'll get to where we're going later. 
Um, for anyone, uh, any new listeners or anyone not uh, not clear on it, this show is um, supported by and produced by a community of people. That's uh, it's an open community available to anyone who wants to join, uh, whether to be um, a consistent active participant or a um, you know a one-time uh, participant of any kind. Basically, the clips that you hear in this show are found by the listeners. Because if any one person were to try to sift through all the radio and television in the world and find all the best, um, that wouldn't work out very well, uh, clearly. So, using the power of numbers to our advantage, everyone in the audience is, is able to find clips that they like and send them in via the website and it, it's it's pretty simple it, it's really nothing more than posting on a message board and you you post on the message board and you say hey i found a clip and this is what it is and where it is and that's it and then someone uh someone working with the show will um go find it and and get it to me or one of our producers and it'll get made into a show you know if it if it's a good clip obviously so, that being where we are, um, I just need to refresh my request for, uh, for participants. And, you know, not because uh, our support is dwindling in, in any way, just that it's healthy to, uh, you know, make this request occasionally uh, in a more personal way than, than those, uh, you know, canned promos that... Uh, that have been put there to try to drill it into your head a little bit more. But uh, basically what I really need, and and I think it's an answer to um, to some people's problems, I've had this, uh, this comment sent to me before, basically saying, you know, I'd like to help, I'd like to send in clips, but I'm not really sure what to send, uh, you know, as I'm listening to, to my regular shows. I don't know what's really good enough to, to send in. And I don't know what topics you're looking for. Um, if you could tell me what you're looking for, I'd be better suited to uh, to help you out. Well, finally, um, that that is is the case. I can actually tell you what I'm looking for. Uh, in in the past, it was it was never that way. It was always send in the best of whatever you find, and and we'll figure out where to put it. But now. Um, the whole show is not taking a turn to be focused entirely on global warming, but for the time being and and for the foreseeable future, that is uh, that is what I would like the casual listener and uh, and and um, occasional participant of the uh, of the community and and the support that, that goes into the show. That's what I'd like you to focus on. So, uh, you know, of course, old standards still apply. If you find anything great, um, please, 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 please send it in. Um, but what we're really looking for now is clips on global warming. And I'm talking like serious, hard-hitting, uh, you know, news items, uh, you know, fresh news on the topic, um, you know, like interviews with specialists and uh, and like really kind of serious um, serious scientific 
stuff, uh, as, as well as kind of hard-hitting commentary, and, uh, and then your usual humorous and, um, and entertaining uh, clips. You, you know, the, the whole spectrum of, um, uh, of different clips on the topic of global warming and uh, and that in and of itself uh, support on this issue will support the show and the continuation of it and the sustainability and uh, uh, frequency of episodes uh, your help on this will help that cause more than anything else I've ever asked any of you to do so uh, if, if you're one of those people who have thought in the past, I'd like to help, but I don't really know what to do. I don't know exactly how to help. This is it. You know, if, if you need a little bit more guidance, um, this is what I'm giving you. It's uh, uh, global warming uh, issues and and clips are going to, I believe, turn into the, let's say, lifeblood of the show. So... More details as they become available on, on what all of this actually means and what's going to be happening. But uh, if we can get support on this, then we'll be good to go. So thanks in advance for uh, all of your help. Anyone who gets involved, we, we couldn't do it without you. The show simply would not exist without the audience. You know, every, everybody says that, um, you know, especially professional shows always say, you know, we wouldn't exist without the, without the audience. And the reason for that is because they sell advertising based on the size of their audience. And if they can't pay for the show, then they can't run a show. Uh, our case is a little bit different. And I think it's much better that um, logistically, we literally wouldn't exist without the audience because without audience participation and, and members of the community getting involved with making the show, it's just not logistically possible to produce this thing. So, um, you know, I, th I think uh, I think we're a, a part of something really special, and, and I I can't express my thanks to, to those of you who get involved enough. So for the show and for the community, my name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C., powered by bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Just a f-